Good morning. Before we continue any further, let's go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children to their Sunday school classrooms. For the rest of us, we're going to be continuing our march through the Gospel of Luke, and so go ahead and pull out your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 17. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to reach down, uh, borrow one of the Bibles um, uh, that are conveniently placed under some of the chairs around you. I do think that it's very important that we all read through the Word ourselves as we go through it verse by verse. We want to follow the example that was left for us by the Bereans in the book of Acts. Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts, and he writes of the Bereans saying that they received the Word with all readiness and they searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things, uh, the things that Paul and Silas were teaching, if they were so. And I want us all to be students of the Word, okay? searching out the Scriptures on a regular basis to ensure what's being taught is in accordance with the rest of God's Holy Word. And so that's why it's so important that we have our Bibles with us and follow along. Last week, we began our study of chapter 17 in a message that I entitled, Doing Our Duty. And if you were with us, uh, you will recall that in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 17, we noted how Jesus was once again speaking to his disciples and specifically addressing their duties as believers and followers of the Lord. We noted how their really their duties were twofold, right? They had a duty to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, right? And they had a duty to love their neighbor as themselves. Now in our text, we noted some of the duties Jesus taught on that pertain to one another, okay? Our interactions as neighbors, okay? How we are to ensure that we don't cause a brother or sister to stumble in their walk with Jesus. How we are to lovingly and graciously rebuke one another when our brother or sister sins against us and how we are to forgive one another when our brother or sister repents of their sin. And then we noted some of the duties that Jesus taught on that pertain to our relationship with the Lord. Two things that we noted, how we are to pull, we are to put all of our faith, hope, and trust in the Lord and how we are to serve the Lord humbly and willingly all of our days. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. And the title I've chosen for this particular message is A Grateful Gentile. A Grateful Gentile. And I chose that word grateful intentionally after doing a little word study. Uh, you know, in the English language, we often use the words grateful and thankful somewhat interchangeably. Okay, at least I do. I'll, I'll, I won't speak for you all. Maybe you're you know, you speak proper English, but uh, I know that I use them interchangeably as if they're the exact same word, but they actually have some differences. Um, and while these are very similar, I want to be able to note these differences that I discovered. These are general principles about these two words. Primarily, being grateful is an act, while being thankful is a feeling or a state of being. Gratefulness is expressing gratitude towards someone for something that they did, perhaps, while thankfulness is mostly intended for yourself. And lastly, thankfulness precedes gratefulness. You know, there's a saying out there that you cannot give what you don't have. And the same also applies to expressing gratitude. You cannot express it if you don't first feel it in the first place. This is why thankfulness 
almost always precedes gratefulness. You know, to be thankful for something that's, you know, happened on the inside, you're like, wow, that, I'm really thankful for this situation that I'm in right now, and, and I'm feeling blessed because of that. And then you might then churn that thankfulness into gratefulness by going and expressing your gratitude for someone that did something to you. You know, maybe you were blessed with a gift, and so you're thankful for that because of the way that it makes you feel, but you would be grateful Show that gratefulness by going and thanking that person, saying, thank you for what you did for me. So there's some key differences. You know, in our account this morning, we're going to read about a Gentile, a Samaritan leper that was thankful for the healing that he received, but what stood out about him was how that feeling he had turned into action. He became a grateful Gentile, expressing his gratitude to the Lord for what he had done for him. And so let's go ahead and we're going to read our account and then we'll pray. We'll ask God to lead and guide us through our time together. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and his word? I'm going to read our text from my Bible. Okay, I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version. If you're reading from a different translation, please just do your best to follow along in whatever translation you're reading from. So Luke writes the following in chapter 17, verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And so when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you for this text, this opportunity to open up uh, your word and allow your word just to speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would lead and guide us in all truth. Lord, we thank you for just your spirit's presence with us. And we pray that uh, as we study, Lord, that we would not just uh, fill our heads with uh, intellectual knowledge, Lord, but that we would uh, allow your word to penetrate our hearts and mold and shape us in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we just submit ourselves to you completely, asking for you to continue that work you began in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In uh, verses 11 and 12, it says, Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria And Galilee, and then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. So our text opens up with a very peculiar statement that doesn't make a whole lot of sense based upon our understanding of the context of Luke's gospel. Now, if you've been with us through our study of the gospel of Luke for quite some time now, uh, you may remember that back in chapter 9, we read of how the time had come for Jesus to be received up and how he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
And we know that at the beginning of this journey, he initially made his way into a certain Samaritan village, but they did not receive him because they noticed that his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And so they basically didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And so he went on his way. And since that time, Jesus has presumably been slowly making his way towards Jerusalem, primarily through the region of Perea, which was east of the Jordan River. Okay, this is the same place where John the Baptist went when he was baptizing people in the Jordan. He set up shop in the region beyond the river, okay, the region known as Perea. Now, we do know from our reading of the Gospel of Luke that during this time, Jesus did get close to Jerusalem, uh, but Luke never records him actually entering into Jerusalem. According to Luke chapter 10, Jesus went to Bethany to house of the house of Mary and Martha. You guys may recall we covered that and how Martha was uh, upset because Mary was sat at Jesus' feet and Jesus said, hey, Martha, you're, you're, you know, consumed with too much, you know, Martha, Martha, you know, you've, uh, I've drawn a blank, but <laughs> you're, you're busy with much serving, you know, and he says, but Mary's chosen the better thing, you know. Bethany was a, a small village, you know, located just outside of Jerusalem. But what strikes us, or maybe, or at least me, it struck me as I was studying this as odd, is the fact that verse 11 states how it happened as Jesus went to Jerusalem, then he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, okay? Now, some of your Bibles might have uh, maps in the back of them. Most of them do, and if they do have maps in the back of them, they'll usually have one of Israel during the days and time of Jesus, and it'll break up the different regions. It might help just to kind of get a visual perspective Okay. If you know your geography, you should know that the route to Jerusalem only shares a border with Samaria and Galilee way up in the north. Okay. Israel was broken down into several different regions. On the west of the Jordan River was primarily Galilee to the north. Then you had uh, Samaria was in the central area, and then there was Judea in the south, and that's where the city of Jerusalem was located in Judea. On the east side of the Jordan, beyond the Jordan River, there was the region of Decapolis that was just east of Galilee, and then uh, in the north, and then the region of Perea that ran lengthwise uh, opposite both Samaria and Judea. So based upon our understanding of Luke's gospel, as we've been reading through, Jesus has been in Perea, which is southeast of Galilee. So how could he then be passing through the midst of Samaria and Galilee at this time. So as we've been tracking, we're kind of like, he's in the southeast right now, but now all of a sudden you're telling us he's way up north. So how did that happen, right? Well, to better understand what's going on, we have to read from the other gospel accounts. It is widely believed, I am one that believes this, that there's a gap of time between Luke chapter um, 17 verse 10 and verse 11. Okay, verse 10 from last week and verse 11, the very first verse of our text this week, there is a gap of time. And most believe that the events of John chapter 11 took place in between these two verses. In between verse 10 and verse 11, we have the events of John chapter 11. And in John 11, we're told about the account of the death of Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, how Jesus raised him back to life from the dead, This took place also in Bethany. And so once again, Jesus went into Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. 
After Jesus miraculously raised Lazarus from the dead, word spread quickly and the Pharisees and religious leaders got wind of this incident. And from that day forward, they plotted to put Jesus to death, according to John chapter 11, verse 53. Verse 54 tells us, Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is associated with the Old Testament city of Ophrah, and it's located in the region of Samaria. And that makes sense for us, right? If we understand what's going on in John chapter 11, okay? This lets us know that from Bethany, Jesus headed up north through the region of Samaria, stopping off in the city of Ephraim. The region of Samaria was a safer place for Jesus to be at this time because the Pharisees and the religious leaders wouldn't dare enter into Samaria because of their hatred for the Samaritans. And so evidently during this time between verse 10 and verse 11 of our text, okay, he traveled back up towards the northern border of Samaria and Galilee before circling back to Jerusalem in order to be there for the Jewish Passover, which is what we'll get to soon in a couple chapters. Okay? And so this is how we can make sense of verse 11 uh, and Jesus passing through the midst of Samaria and Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. For whatever reason, Luke does not record this venture from Bethany up through the region of Samaria that Jesus took before circling back down towards Jerusalem. You have to read John's gospel in order to find that out. Okay? You know, I, I was kind of getting all excited about this. I was fair, sharing it with Farah, and she's like, nobody's going to notice that. No one's going to care. And I'm like... I'm still going to share it. I like it. I think it's cool, you know. Uh, I just love how, you know, the four Gospels, you know, they tell the same basic story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But each author, you know, led by the Holy Spirit, includes different aspects of Jesus' life and, and ministry. And we need to take the whole of the Scripture in order to get that full picture and to understand all that took place and, and how it all fits together and I don't know, to me, I, I just like that. So it's just, I'm sharing it with you. Back to our text, okay? We're told that Jesus entered into a certain village and there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. Now, this is not the first time that we've encountered someone with leprosy in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Earlier, back in Luke chapter 5, Jesus encountered a man who was full of leprosy and he healed him. You guys may know, but just in case you don't, leprosy is a, uh, a skin disease, okay, a, a horrid one. Okay? It's mentioned often in the Bible. The disease begins with specks on the eyelids and on the palms of your hands, and it gradually spreads over the body. It will bleach the hair white wherever it does appear, these uh, specks, and it will cause uh, the skin to be crusted over. Uh, with these white scales. It will cause terrible sores and swellings. Sometimes these swellings will burst, causing open wounds, oftentimes infection. Uh, From the skin, the disease eats inward to the bones, rotting the whole body bit by bit. Nerves are shot, and the rotting flesh would get so bad that actual exterior limbs like toes and and fingers and and noses could actually simply fall off uh, from leprosy. Leprosy was something that defiled a man or a woman who had it. They would be considered ceremonially unclean. They would be forbidden from entering into the temple and the synagogues in order to join in public worship. They were deprived of a social life uh, of their fellow beings. They would be forbidden from staying within the city walls. 
They lived in isolation, away from friends and family and loved ones. The only other people that they could socialize and, and be with were other lepers who also had been cast out from their own societies. Now, according to the book of Leviticus, these lepers were to be cast out of the city and they had to tear their clothes to show themselves in, in mourning. So they were to wear you know, what they call mourning clothes. They would have to shave their heads and they were required to cry out, unclean, unclean, okay, as a way to warn people to keep their distance from them, okay? I've got leprosy, I'm unclean, don't get anywhere near me, okay? There was no known cure for leprosy. The only hope of ever recovering from this disease was through a divine healing of God. Now, as we hear about leprosy and this dreaded disease that it is, let us not forget that the Bible often associates leprosy with sin. And, it, and there's a lot of reasons why that's so. Okay? Just like leprosy, sin is a terribly deadly disease. It starts out small, but will continue to spread, making its way throughout the whole body, defiling it, destroying lives. Just like leprosy, sin isolates us and separates us from God. Isaiah 59.2 speaks of how our iniquities have separated us from our God and our sins have hidden his face from us. Sin makes us unclean. It keeps us from entering into worship and fellowship with the body of Christ. It will separate us from loved ones and completely consume us. And just like leprosy, without the divine intervention of God, there is no cure for it. There is no way to be cured from, from sin outside of God. These lepers, they had it bad. Okay? They had come down with an infectious disease that carried a life sentence with it. But you guys need to understand the truth of the matter is that we were all born with a deadly infectious disease, a, a sinful nature that infects us all. You see, we are, are like these 10 leopards in this account, okay? Our sin separated us from the Lord and our loved ones. It was eating away at us, destroying our lives, and our only hope was God's gracious touch upon our lives. Let's continue. We're going to note these 10 lepers and what they did when they saw Jesus headed their way. Read with me verse 13. It says, And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. These 10 lepers, they lifted up their voices in unison, crying out to Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The word master carries with it the idea of a superior. It was a term that Luke liked to use. In fact, it's only found in the book of Luke. Okay? It was the word used to indicate one who had authority over someone. Often it was used to describe the relationship between a rabbi or teacher uh, amongst his disciples. And so Luke records the disciples referring to Jesus as master uh, in this uh, case. And so we understand based upon this, we get an idea at least that these lepers, they have an idea of who Jesus is. Okay? We don't know how they came to know about who Jesus was, but it's evident that they have heard of him. And it could very well be that they had heard about how he had the power to heal from leprosy. News of people being healed from a disease that had no known cure would spread quickly, okay? And news like that would be the kind of news that would especially catch the ears of these 10 
men, anybody else that had leprosy, like you're, you're telling me there's a guy out there that can heal leprosy, okay? They're on the lookout. They want to know, you know, tell me where this guy is at. Perhaps these men heard about the man that Jesus had healed earlier in Luke's gospel account, the man that came to Jesus and worshiped before him, proclaiming, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. We know that Jesus would, in fact, heal that man. Maybe word of that healing spread. These 10 people knew of what Jesus was capable of. Now note with me what their request is. They cried out, have mercy on us. They didn't demand that Jesus heal them, but specifically and simply they requested for mercy to be shown to them. And I find this very important. Mercy, you know, can be described in a couple of different ways. Mercy is showing compassion uh, or extending help towards another. It can be displayed by the pity we might have for someone in the situation that they're in. But I always like to consider mercy in relation to a few other things, namely justice and grace. Because I believe these three are very closely related, justice, mercy, and grace. And I've said this before, but I'll continue to say it and explain it this way. You see, justice is getting what you do deserve, right? If you break the law and you have to pay a fine or you break the law and you got to go to jail, we would say, oh, well, justice was served because you got what you deserve, right? That's justice. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you do deserve. Okay? Let's just throw a hypothetical out there. Let's say you know someone, not you, of course, but let's say you know someone that got pulled over uh, by uh, highway patrol or you know police, and they said, hey, you're going too fast. You're speeding, right? And you, well, not you, but this person, okay, deserves a speeding ticket, right? They broke the law, okay? They deserve that. But if the officer says, hey, I'm just going to give you a warning, okay? You're not getting what you do deserve. That's mercy, okay? Mercy, okay? Grace, the third one. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, okay? You don't deserve it whatsoever. You have no claim to it whatsoever. You cannot do anything about it. It's just God's unmerited favor. You getting something you have absolutely no right to be getting in the first place. You see, them crying out for mercy was them recognizing their situation. It was them recognizing their need for God's mercy. They were at the end of their ropes. They had no hope to cling to other than mercy being poured out upon them. They could not cry out for justice, right? Justice and the law is what got them where they were. Because of their leprosy, they were getting what was prescribed from them from the law. Leviticus was very clear. Hey, if if you get leprosy, this is what happens. You're going to get kicked out of the city. You're going to have to, you know, yell unclean. You're going to have to do all this stuff. Okay, that, that's justice. You know, that's what was required. Okay, so they can't ask for justice. Okay, but they also knew that they weren't deserving of any special favor. They couldn't call upon Jesus, you know, to be gracious to them because they had nothing, you know, to merit that in any sort of way. All they could hope for was mercy not getting what they deserved. And I think this is important because I think it does show us an important understanding of our own lives and our own relationship to sin. Our only hope as well is to cry out for God's mercy to be poured out upon us. 
Because we have a sin nature, because we sin, our punishment, our wages for sin is death. Okay, That is what Romans 6.23 teaches us. The wages of sin is death. We deserve death because of our sin. Okay, If we die in our sin, well, we'd say justice, that's justice, Okay, because you got what you deserve. But in an, in an act of God's grace, he gave the world a gift it did not deserve. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for our sins, to take our place and die for us. And when we realize the debt that we owe and the magnitude of what we really deserve, okay, that we are sinners deserving of death, and we understand the gift that God gave, all we could do is cry out for God's mercy as well. We cry out to God, begging Him not to give us what we do deserve. We understand, we realize, man, I have sinned. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we realize that, we understand that, and we understand we deserve death. The only thing that we can cry out is, God, have mercy on us. We're going to read this in Luke chapter 18. The sinner, he goes before the Lord, and he's going to cry out that very thing. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It is then that God will once again pour out his grace upon us, granting to us the forgiveness of our sins, giving to us the gift of eternal life, a gift that we do not deserve, a gift that's solely the result of God's unmerited divine favor upon us, his grace upon us. And so we see this balance between justice and mercy and grace in our situation, just like the same situation here. They, all they could do is call upon God's mercy, saying, God, don't give us what we deserve. We know we, by the law, this is what our life is. But God, show mercy. Okay? The same thing for us. We realize, God, we've sinned. We've blown it. Okay? And we need your mercy, God. We don't want to get what we deserve. Let's note how Jesus responds to these 10 lepers crying out for mercy. Verse 14 says, So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Jesus saw them and he gave to them a command. He commanded them, Go, show yourselves to the priest. This was not Jesus' way of like writing them off or saying, like, I don't, I'm too busy for you. You know, go see the priest. You know, I'm not going to do anything for you. Okay, we have to understand what's going on here. Okay. Interestingly enough, though there was no known cure for leprosy, God did lay out the requirements or the process of how one could be reinstated into their community after being cleansed from leprosy. In Leviticus chapter 14, instructions are given for what was to happen in the case where a leper felt like he had been healed or cleansed from their disease of leprosy. They were to go to the priest and they were to be examined by the priest. Now priests, you know, they were not medical doctors. Okay, They didn't treat people who were sick. Their job as laid out in Leviticus 14 was more like that of, we might say, like a health inspector. Okay? They were to examine the body, and after a careful examination, they were to proceed with the ritual process. If there was no visible signs of leprosy, that would then allow this person to enter back in to their community. 
Now, if you're not familiar with the ritual process, you can read about it in Leviticus 14. I'll try to summarize it a little bit for you. It involved bringing in two small birds uh, to the priest. Okay, the priest would kill one of the birds, pour the blood into a water basin, and then dip the living bird along with cedarwood, scarlet, and hyssop into the water basin. The priest would then use the cedarwood, scarlet, and hyssop to sprinkle the bloody water upon the one being pronounced clean. And then they would release the living bird to fly off to join all the other birds. Okay? And so the living bird was to be symbolic of the freedom of the leper to rejoin society and to be proclaimed clean because of the sprinkling of the blood that it was upon the man and the you know, bloody water that the bird was dunked in. You know, so it's this picture. Okay? What Jesus is commanding these lepers to do was in fulfillment of this Old Testament law concerning the ritual that was required for any leper to be proclaimed clean and able to rejoin society. There's just one problem, though. Okay? Lepers were only permitted to go see the priest after they had been cleansed. Okay? Jesus commanded these guys to go show themselves to the priest while still filled with leprosy. He didn't heal them first and then send them on their way. No, he sent them, telling them to go to the priest prior to ever healing them. And I believe Jesus was doing this as a test, to test their faith. This was Jesus saying, okay, if I am master, as you say I am, then go to the priest and show him yourself. Show yourself to him. And I find this so very interesting for a couple of reasons. One, okay, it shows us the variation God used in bringing about his divine healings. Okay? Early in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus encountered the leprous man who said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus, we're told that he reached out his hand and he touched him, okay, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And we're told that immediately the leprosy left him. Okay? And so we might look and say, oh, well, this is how Jesus heals lepers. He puts his hand on them, and he says, I'm willing, and immediately they'll be cleansed. Well, that's not what happens here. Jesus doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't touch these men. He doesn't heal them immediately. Instead, he, he calls out to them as they are still afar off, and he tells them to go show themselves to the priest. The healing wouldn't come until they were obedient to first go and, and show themselves. And so we see here, Jesus healed people all sorts of different ways. He healed several blind people, but he did so in various ways. If you read through some of the gospel accounts, you'll read of how sometimes he simply touched their eyes and they were immediately healed. Another time he spat in their eyes and he touched them and their sight gradually returned. To another, he actually spat on the ground and he made clay with the saliva and then he took that clay, anointed the blind man's eyes with it and then told him to go wash his eyes out in the pool of Siloam and it wasn't until after he washed the mud out of his eyes that he was actually healed and could see. God healed in all these various ways, different ways. And I think he does so purposefully is because he knows our tendency we like to, you know, we like to make programs, we like to, our methods, and we like to know how things are done. And okay, step one, step two, step three, I do these steps, I'm going to get this, you know, outcome. Listen, you guys, God will not be placed in our boxes, okay? 
not in our, our programs, our methods, as if to suggest that he can only operate one way. God is free to operate however he sees fit, however he chooses. Okay? And so he operates and heals in all sorts of various ways. We can't look to the scriptures and say, oh, this is the way that people are healed from leprosy, or this is the way people were healed from blindness, because he healed them in a whole bunch of different ways. I think it's a, a good thing to note, and, and as far as just application, we need to make sure that we're not limiting God and trying to say, hell, God can only do this or that because, look, this is what the Bible says here. So, no, look at what the whole Scripture says. He worked in all sorts of various incredible ways. Okay? His ways, according to Isaiah 55, verse 9, they are beyond our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are the ways of the Lord higher than ours. Romans states in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And so I believe that's something worth noting. But there's more. Okay? I also find it worth noting that Jesus told them to first go before receiving their healing. He wanted them to act by faith to go in faith. And it reminded me as I was studying of the account of the Jews crossing over the Jordan River and entering into the promised land there in Joshua chapter 3. Some of you may be familiar with Joshua chapter 3, the crossing of the Israelites into the promised land, right? God commanded Joshua to tell the priests to bear the ark and to go first into the waters of the Jordan River. Now previously, if you know your uh, Old Testament, when they crossed the Red Sea, God made Moses strike the water with his staff and the water parted. Nobody had to first get wet. But this time it was different. Before the waters would part and stand up in a heap, allowing them to pass by, they had to first step into the overflowing banks of the Jordan River. Actually, Joshua chapter 3 tells us that it was during the harvest time and that the river was overflowing the banks at this time. So this is a, a raging kind of water. This is not like a little stream where we're doing a little river crossing type thing. And, and Joshua, God told Joshua to tell the priest, hey, the water's not going to part until you actually step in. And it was not until the priests were obedient and they put their foot in the Jordan River that the waters stood still and rose up in a heap. The waters were cut off and the Israelites crossed over on dry land, according to Joshua chapter 3, verse 17. They had to first step in before the waters ceased, taking a step of faith, trusting God's word given to them through Joshua. He reminds me of Abraham and God's calling upon his life. You know, we've been studying the life of Abraham in uh, Wednesday nights in the book of Genesis. God called Abraham, Abram at the time, okay, and told him, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. God didn't tell Abram where he was going. He just told him to leave and that he would eventually show him. Listen, that takes faith. It takes faith to up and leave your home and your family and to go to some unknown destination to some unknown people. You see, you guys, in this life, we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. That's what Paul states in 2 Corinthians. He says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And you guys, I'm going to be honest with you here. That's hard. 
And I don't know about you, but I would much rather God just lay out the whole plan for me to see with my own eyes, right? I want to know where I'm going, okay? And I want to see with my own eyes where I'm going to be going and, and what lies ahead, right? I don't know if it's the same for you, but I know that for in my life, seldom has God ever done that for me. Seldom does he lay it all out and say, let let me show you, Glenn, what it's going to look like. It's going to look like this and then this and then this. No, no, no. That's never how it happens. Be faithful. Step out and see. Be obedient to his word without knowing all the details. You know, so often we want to see what God is doing before we commit to taking that first step. But it's as if God's saying, take the first step and then you'll see what I'm doing. Many want to come to God on their own terms. They tell God to show them a miracle and then they'll believe, but we have it all backwards. If we really want to see the miraculous, we must first be believing. Then God will start to show us the miraculous as we faithfully walk in faith and in obedience. That's what happened here in our text. These ten lepers, they listened to Jesus' command to go to the priest despite the fact that they hadn't been healed and we're told that uh, at the end of verse 14 that as they went, that's when they were cleansed. These guys were obedient to Jesus' command to go and upon seeing their faith, Jesus cleansed them along the way. God didn't heal them because they obeyed. I want to make this clear. Their obedience was simply evidence of their faith. He healed them because they believed that Jesus was able to physically heal them. They had enough faith to step out and heed Jesus' command to go show themselves to the priest, even though they hadn't been physically healed yet. So these men were healed by Jesus through their faith, and that faith was evidenced by their obedience. Do you see how they're connected? You see, our obedience is proof. It's evidence if you will, of our faith. James actually says in James chapter 2, verse 17, that faith without works is dead. Right? You see, James said, show me your faith without your works. Hey, you can't do that. And he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. Our works, they are evidence of our faith. If we truly believe the Lord, if we truly trust in Him and have placed our faith in Him, then we will be obedient to what His Word tells us to do. Jesus put it this way in John's Gospel. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Listen, God wants us to demonstrate our faith and our love for Him through our obedience to His Word. May we be doers of His Word and not just hearers of His Word. Let's continue on. We'll see what transpired next. Read with me verses 15 and 16 again as we read about the response of one of the lepers. It says, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. As the lepers were on their way to the priest, Jesus healed them based upon their faith. And though Jesus only speaks of the one seeing that he was healed, I think it's fair to say that all of them noticed that they had been healed along the way to the priest. Uh, It wasn't as if one's like, oh my goodness, I was healed. And and all the rest just like, well, I'm not going to look until I go to the priest. No, they probably started checking themselves out too, right? They noticed that they were healed. But only one of them. And a Samaritan at that. 
returned to Jesus to express his gratitude for Jesus' healing upon his life. The fact that this was a Samaritan was a big deal because the inference is that there were some amongst the group of lepers who were Jewish, that it was a mixed group, that there was Jews and Samaritans within this group of lepers. And the reason that this is a big deal is because the Jews and the Samaritans really didn't get along with each other. They despised each other. We already saw in our study of Luke how Jesus was rejected in the last Samaritan village that he visited. And there is a history that played out that led to the disdain that they had for one another. If you're not familiar with it, it traces all the way back to the two kingdoms. We had the kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes of Israel. And when they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, they were never sent back into the land. Okay? But what the Assyrians decided to do was to send a bunch of foreigners into the land to work the land and to mix in with the few Israelites that were still left in the land. Okay? From this mixing of Israelites and foreigners came what's known as the Samaritans. Okay? These were people who were half Jewish, half Gentile. They were considered a mixed breed. Okay? When the southern tribe uh, or the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity into Babylon, unlike the northern tribes, the captivity was only for a short time. They returned to the land 70 years later. When they returned to the land, they despised all non-Jews and specifically had a disdain for the Israelites who had disobeyed the law of Moses and intermarried with these foreigners. It was as if it's like, hey, you know, we're pure bloods and, and you Israelites defiled yourselves. You're horrible people. You're worse off than these, you know, Gentiles because you've polluted something that was, you know, holy or pure was this mindset, okay? And ever since then, okay, this is hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on scene, okay? Ever since then, they've been at odds with one another, the Samaritans and the Jews, and so the fact that only the only one who returned to express gratitude to this Jewish teacher, right, a Jewish rabbi, was a Samaritan, okay, that would be a shocking uh, detail. That was a big deal. And as the Samaritan returned to Jesus, we're told that he did three things. I want you to note them with me, okay? The first thing that he did was glorify God with a loud, I assume, an unashamed voice, right? The idea being uh, behind glorifying God is to ascribe glory or honor to someone, to praise them and celebrate them. To glorify God means to render him glory, to recognize him for who and what he is, to celebrate him and all that he is and all that he's done. This man returned to Jesus praising him with all that he had in recognition of all Jesus had done for him. He praised Jesus for his goodness and the mercy that had been poured out upon him. And I think it uh, just goes to say that, you know, we ought to be doing the same thing, you guys. As we recognize all who God is and all that he's done for us, continues to do for us, we ought to respond in a loud, unashamed praise to Jesus, right? We should be lifting our voices to the Lord and, and, and praising him, right? I love that we get to sing. We gather together on, on Sundays, okay? And we praise the Lord and we worship Him and we sing to the Lord of His goodness, His faithfulness, His mercy, His love, right? The second thing that He does 
as he falls down on his face at the feet of Jesus. This was a form of worship and surrender. He prostrated himself, putting his face to the ground in worship and in complete submission to Jesus as Lord. And prostrating himself in such a manner, he was yielding himself completely to Jesus as an act of worship. He was submitting himself completely to the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is powerful. For we see that he wasn't just wanting Jesus as savior of his life, but also Lord. It wasn't like, hey, thanks for healing me. See you later. No, he's like, I, I want to submit myself completely to you. I'm going to be fully yielded to you, face down on the ground before you. You know, there are a lot of people who think that they can separate the two, that they can have Jesus as Savior of their life without ever making Him Lord of their life. But a Jesus who is not both Lord and Savior of your life is a different Jesus than who is portrayed in the Scriptures. You cannot have one without the other. Jesus cannot be Savior if He is not also Lord. They're a a package deal. (laughs) And Lordship means that we yield our lives completely to the desires of our Lord. I've often referred to this idea sometimes as salad bar Christianity, right? This is not salad bar Christianity where we get to go and pick and choose what we like and what we don't like, right? We go through with our plate and we're like, oh yeah, I, I, you know, uh, I, I love Jesus, my Savior, right? And, and I love forgiveness, and I love grace, and I love mercy, and, you know, give me, give me more of that, right? I'll load my plate up with that. But then we come across, you know, this idea of Jesus is Lord. Well, I'm not so sure I want to do that. Obedience? Mm, discipleship? Uh, persecution? No way. I don't want that. Holiness? Purity? Mm, pass. And, and we treat it like it's a salad bar. Like we can just kind of pick and choose whatever we want. That's not Christianity. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. We must surrender our lives to Jesus as both Lord and Savior and continue to treat Him as such all of our days. The third thing the Samaritan did was give Jesus thanks. This Samaritan was thankful that he had been healed, healed, excuse me, and he showed his gratitude by verbally thanking Jesus over and over again. The verb giving thanks, it's written in the present participle, meaning it was an ongoing action without an assessment of the action's completion. He continued to give thanks over and over again. And I think just what a great example this Samaritan gives for us. Our response to Jesus is that in all things we are to give thanks. 1 Thessalonians states, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, I've had a number of people that come to me, and I've talked with them before and counseled with them, and they want to know God's will for their life. And they're like, I'm praying, trying to figure out what God's will is for my life. This is God's will for your life, okay? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We are to give thanks in everything, you guys, whether we think it good or bad. We are to give thanks to the Lord, knowing and trusting that He is at work in our lives. Even in the bad things, we can say, God, I I thank you for this, because I know you're going to work in this. I know you're going to work through this. Thank Him for the good, knowing that it's 
only because of his goodness and, and blessing upon our life that we have the, these things. And so we can give thanks in everything. This Samaritan, he demonstrates the kind of response we all should have, realizing the mercy that's been poured out upon us. We should unashamedly praise God. We should worship and surrender our lives to him, and we should continually give thanks to him for his work in our lives. Well, let's see what Jesus had to say to this Samaritan who returned to express his gratitude. Read with me verses 17 and 18. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? We'll pause right there real real fast. Jesus wanted to know where the other nine were at. He questioned the leper, asking if not ten were healed and where the other nine were. He questioned, you know, why there weren't any others besides the Samaritan who returned to give glory to God. And this intrigues me because I don't think this questioning was meant to be answered by the leper. I don't think, you know, he's looking for the leper to actually respond and answer for these other nine people, right? I believe the response is for us. It's for us to realize and understand that Jesus expects us to be a grateful people, right? To not just be a thankful people, right? You know, we could be thankful. We could be a people who are excited about what God has done for us, how it makes us feel, a people that are blessed to know, hey, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I'm that. That excites me, right? And I can be really thankful for how that impacts me, right? But God wants us to be a grateful people. Remember when we talked about the difference between grateful and thankful? People that actually express our gratitude towards the Lord through our actions. We can easily look down upon these other nine for not returning to give glory to God, but how often do we take our blessings for granted and fail to thank the Lord? The psalmist writes, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. In fact, the psalmist wrote this refrain four times throughout Psalm 107, a psalm that's all about giving thanks to the Lord. And he wrote that exact refrain, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of God. Four times in verse 8, in verse 15, in verse 21, verse 31. You think it's important that he would repeat it four times in the same psalm? I think so. That we would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. Warren Rearsby, he writes this in his commentary. I wanted to share it with you. He said, real simply, he said, too often we are content to enjoy the gift, but we forget the giver. We are quick to pray, but slow to praise And my hope and prayer for us all is that we would take the time to express our gratitude to the Lord, that we would take time to enjoy the giver and not just his gifts, that when we go to him in prayer, that we would not forget to also praise the Lord. Let's take a look at our final verse. We'll wrap this up. Verse 19, it says, And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus said, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You see, all ten lepers received physical healing. But this Samaritan who came back to glorify God also received spiritual healing. Some of you might be wondering, how do we know that? You know, how do we know he received spiritual healing? Okay, It's because of the wording that Jesus, is, Jesus used here. Jesus said, your faith has made you well. That word well in the Greek is the word sozo. It's the Greek word to save. 
Okay, so the idea here is Jesus is saying, your faith has saved you. It's actually translated that exact way earlier in Luke's gospel when talking about the woman in the city who was a sinner, and she came and she anointed Jesus' feet with uh, fragrant oil, and she wiped Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. You guys remember that account? Okay, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus said to that woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In the Greek, the phrase, your faith has saved you, is written in the exact same way as it's written here in verse 19. It's the exact same Greek sentence, okay? Your faith has saved you. And so we know that Jesus is talking about salvation here. In fact, the Greek word here, sozo, it's actually found some 110 times in the New Testament. And 93 of those 110 times, it's translated as the verb to save. It's talking about salvation. Okay? Because of his faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior of his life, salvation came to this man. The, upper, the other lepers, they had faith that Jesus could heal them, and they received physical healing. But they did not express their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior like this Samaritan. And therefore they missed out on the fullness of the blessing God was wanting to work in them. And I wonder how many of us are missing out on the fullness of all God wants to do in us and through us simply because we've failed to acknowledge the Lord and His goodness and His faithfulness unto us. You see, I believe with all my heart that God wants to continue to do great and awesome things in us and through us, so much more than we could even imagine or think. And so let's make sure that we are open to that work by never forgetting to acknowledge the the Lord and by cultivating within us a heart of gratitude. Not just a heart of thankfulness, I'm really thankful, but I'm grateful. And it's demonstrated through our actions. Okay? And I believe that if we will cultivate a heart of gratitude, that doing so will open up our hearts to further blessings, and I will believe it will bring glory and honor to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of this Samaritan leper, Lord, whom you healed, and uh, how he came back to praise you, Lord, understanding the mercy that had been poured about out upon him. And he's such a great example for us, Lord, and how we too ought to respond to the mercy that has been poured out upon us. Lord, I pray that we would unashamedly glorify you, Lord, that we would sing your praises, Lord, that we would tell of your goodness and your faithfulness to all around us. Lord, I pray that we would just fall at your feet in complete surrender, Lord, that we would live uh, our lives in such a way that you uh, are seen to be not just Savior, but Lord of our lives. We're yielded to the work you want to do in and through us. And Lord, that we would be a people that give thanks, that are thankful for all that you've done, all that you continue to do in our hearts and lives, and that we would cultivate that heart of gratitude, Lord, and it would show through our actions. And so, Lord, do that work in our hearts, in our lives. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.